0: To you as well. Uh, as we get settled, let me make to you a, uh, a few announcements. Uh, as you are aware, hopefully that it is uh, it is Memorial Day, uh, and so it's a Memorial. Oh, sorry, tomorrow's Memorial Day, it's a Memorial Day weekend. Um, and with that being said, um, uh, it's just a lot of people traveling and things like that, and so which is fine. Uh, the doors open. We are here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but I did wanted to quickly mention that uh, our meeting that we were supposed to have last week that we had to cancel are it's rescheduled for June 12th. And so if you read through the newsletter this week, I mistakenly said July 12th. I meant June 12th, which is a Sunday immediately following the service. And then uh also with regards to the calendar, just to keep on your radar on July 10th, uh we will be having a cookout at the Elliott Boat Basin in Maine, and more details will come as we get closer to that date. Uh, well, if you have been uh, following just the, uh, the the news and the headlines uh, this past week, then you'll know we're sort of in a tumultuous time uh, right now. And we'll be praying for some of these things later on in the service, but uh, let us come before the Lord this morning. Um, as I think about sort of what's going on, I think about in Romans chapter 8, where it says that the, that the whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth as it waits for the revealing or the glorification of the sons of God, and that When this happens, then earth itself, creation, will be glorified as well. And so uh, there is this sort of this agonizing and this aching because of uh, depravity, because of suffering, because of wickedness, because of sin that is in the world. And we too as well as Christians, we, we go through, we feel this tension ourselves. But let us come together this morning and let us cast our eyes upon the Lord. And hopefully, prayerfully, the Lord will encourage us and strengthen us this morning as we look to His Word as we look to Him through our time of fellowship, as we look to Him through our time of prayer, and let us also look to Him this morning as we lift up our voices and worship Him through song this morning. And so let us just, let us do that this morning and begin by uh, looking to Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and worship Him this morning.
1: Amen. Church, let's stand and worship, for He's worthy of our praise, right? So, Word of God says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let's do just that. Amen. Let's sing together, Your Glorious Cause. Your glorious cause, O God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your renown. The cross has saved us, so we pray, your kingdom. sing and give us your strength and give us your strength oh God sing to him encourage to speak perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak Lord and Lord use us as you want whatever the task by grace we'll preach your gospel to our dying. creatures. him and worship him in humbleness oh praise him praise him church you singing all the redeemed all the redeemed washed by his blood come and rejoice in his grace turn in power to reign, heaven and earth will join to sing. We worship you. Oh, church. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield. With shield of faith and belt of truth. We'll stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love. Reaching out to those in darkness. Our call. Our call to war. To love the captive soul. But to rage against the captor. The sword that makes the wounded whole We will fight with faith and valor When faced with trials on every side We know the outcome is secure And Christ will have the prize for which he died An inheritance of nations Come see. See the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet for the conqueror has a Yes, Lord. And as the stone is rolled away and Christ emerges from the grave march continues till the day every eye and heart shall see Him. So spirits so spirit, come put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, oh Lord, that we may run with faith to win the prize. Of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still find the way, retelling triumphs of his grace. We hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. As saints, as saints of old still. Father, we worship you this morning, for you are worthy of our praise. Lord, the words that we just sang out of our mouths. God, I, I pray that we may understand uh, why we sing together and why we worship um, as a congregation, as a church. Um, I pray, God, that as we sang these words, Lord, that we truly understood what we were singing and that the glory and the praise may have been accepted by you, Father. God, continue to lead us um, in the rest of our time in worship through your word, through prayer. May we be encouraged, may we be edified. May we ultimately, Lord, magnify your name. So, Father, we thank you, we worship you. Gotta ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, you may be seated.
0: Amen. Real quick, uh failed to mention that because of uh people being away for the weekend and some people coming down with uh with illness that we Then I have enough people to staff uh, the nursery room. So the nursery is uh, not open this morning, but there is an active kids' room that that has a television. You can actually watch the sermon from there, but it's not a way of kicking you out. You are welcome to stay. Children are welcome to stay here. We are not... uh, We're not... uh, We're not... We're fine with kids being here and yelling and screaming. We're totally fine with that. So they're worshiping the Lord in their own, their own tongue. But let me uh, transition us to a time of prayer. Let me read to us from Psalm 23, and then we'll, we'll pray. Psalm 23, a, a passage familiar to many of us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside still waters, He restores my soul. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are, you are the chief shepherd, and you are the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. You are the faithful high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who knows the sufferings that we endure, who knows the temptations that we have to face. Because not only are you God, but you are also man. And you have come down into the world to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. So that all those who place their faith and trust upon you as their Savior may be saved from the penalty of their sins. So they may have forgiveness of their sins. So they may have eternal life. So they may have a faithful high priest who intercedes for them. We thank you, Lord Jesus, especially as we think about our times and how chaotic they are and how tumultuous they are. We thank you, Lord, that you are the shepherd and overseer of our souls who can still make us lie down in green pastures. That while there may be disorder and chaos in the world, there can be peace and stillness and quietness in our own hearts because you are our God. You tell us to cast all our anxieties upon you so that your peace that surpasses all understandings may God our hearts and our minds. It may not change the situation in our own lives or in the world. But there's a comfort in knowing that no matter what is happening within or without, we can have this peace that comes from casting all our anxieties upon you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that as we walk through this, this wearisome city of man, that you can restore our famished hearts as we look to you for encouragement, as we look to you, as we look to your word, for the strength and encouragement that we need. And Father, we, we pray this morning, our, our prayers go out, just a, the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. God, we, we pray for the many, many families who've, whose lives have been dramatically changed these families who are now walking through this valley of the shadow of death, who have lost loved ones, who have lost spouses, who have lost children, through this great evil. And Father, we, we just pray for them and we ask God that you would bring comfort into their hearts, Lord. The lives are many, their blood cries out, just as Abel's did, crying out for justice, crying out for righteousness, and these families don't get to receive some measure of comfort from knowing that this this individual will face the judgment of man in a court of law, but we pray that they might find some sense of comfort in knowing that no man escapes the judgment of the holy God. Father, we pray that you would comfort them in their affliction. We pray that you would surround them with those who love them. We pray, Lord, that they might look to Jesus as their shepherd, that they will call out to the Lord, to the one who can bring his people to lie down in green pastures beside the still waters. Father, we pray that you would protect them from debilitating despair. That you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them. Father, we pray that you would draw near to all those who are brokenhearted right now. Father, we pray for these little ones, Lord, who are orphaned, Lord, I think of this, this family, this, this mom who was lost in this tragedy, and the father, upon hearing, had this heart attack, and now he has passed on, and four children are left alone. Father, we pray that these children, Lord, would find good and safe home, that you would care for them just in a special way, God. we pray that your grace which is cover this town. Father, we pray also just in light of this report that came out from the Southern Baptist Convention with regards to the sexual abuse. God and Lord, we thank you that this that this came out, Lord, that years of of hiding sin has finally been exposed. And Father, we just pray for the victims. Father, we pray that your grace would cover their hearts and their minds, especially as things are like this, of this nature are covered in every news outlet, and remind them of the tragedies of the past. God, give them comfort, give them peace. Lord, give them strength. Father, we pray for a great conviction of sin and repentance on those who are offenders of those upon those who have hidden these sins for so long. We pray for a turning of direction. Father, we pray for a conviction of sin, repentance, in the denomination as a whole. Father, we pray for just the annual meeting coming up in June. Father, we pray that you would put the right people in the right positions, not only to guard and protect the theology of the denomination, but also to do those things that are wise for the protection of people in the church. Lord, would you provide that guidance, provide that wisdom, provide the right people in those right positions to be able to do what is right. Father, may your church continue to look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, that we may continue to look to our faithful and merciful high priest, that your church may continue to look to Jesus who is the shepherd and overseer of all the souls that he has purchased through his precious blood. Lord, as we continue to pray and lift up our voices to these things, we, it is such a fitting time, Lord, to also pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in the Scriptures. Lord, we agonize as we pray this prayer. We long for the day that you will establish your kingdom of righteousness where every, right, every wrong will be right where there will be justice, where there will be righteousness, where there will be peace, where there will be an eternal dwelling without sin and wickedness. We long for that day, and as we think about this, we pray this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in the Scriptures. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, since we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <clears throat> Amen, if you would, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9 this morning. So Ecclesiastes eight. And with June being around the corner, in a, I think two or three weeks we'll actually transition, take some time away from the book of Ecclesiastes and spend some time in the Psalms. This morning Would you read with me? Ecclesiastes chapter 8. will be reading verses 1 through 9. And if you don't have a copy of God's word with you, the passage will be up on the screen. Verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you might encourage us this morning. Lord, we, whether we realize it or not, We are so dependent on your word. We need your word. So we pray that you might feed us with your living and abiding word. And I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Help us as we give attention to your word to look to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Life often, oftentimes feels like a tug of war, tension pulled, pulling and pushing from one direction to another. And we often feel this kind of tension because our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, because we are Christians. And this isn't new to us. There are examples about this all over the scriptures from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Apostle Paul felt himself this this tension in Philippians when he talks about his desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, or to remain for the progress and joy of the church. In that sense, he experienced sort of this tug of war between actually two very good things. The Apostle Peter speaks of this tension when he exhorts and encourages the church to continue to live their lives as sojourners and exiles in this world, even though doing so will attract unwanted attention by the outside world. It might even lead to persecution. You perhaps have felt this tension of having this identity as a believer, follower of Jesus Christ, and not wanting to engage in the same activities that others want to engage in, whether it's unbelieving friends or maybe family members. Perhaps it's in the workplace Maybe it's a boss, somebody from the top asking you to do something that would defy your own conscience that comes from the Word. Maybe it's in ideologies or worldviews or things that are pushed upon you that you don't necessarily agree with because of your Christian convictions. You have this, this tension, this being pulled, and, but you are sort of the rope. Right? It's not that you're doing the pulling But it's that you yourself are the rope and you're being pulled in two different directions. Sometimes it's between two very good things, sometimes it's between something that the Lord calls you to do and something that the world desires for you to do. Now, as a let me take an aside for a moment. When we come to the word, whether we are reading it and studying it, whether we are preaching through the word of God, it's important for us to sort of bridge the context and try to figure out how exactly does this apply to my life? And so we come to this passage this morning. This is no different. How exactly does it apply to us? And this passage, I'll tell you at the very beginning that it really lends itself to thinking about the king. In our context, it would be somebody who is in rule over us. In our case, namely, it is the president. Instead of sort of generalizing it, instead we should particularize it, make it more specific and think, how exactly does this passage apply to me? How does it apply to us as Christians? And there's no way to sort of get around it because this is talking about the king, somebody who is in authority, somebody who is supreme. But I say this because... I am not in any way intending to preach a political sermon. My desire and intent is to preach this passage in a respectful manner towards the man who is above us. So I don't desire to preach a political sermon. Hopefully it doesn't come across that way. When I say political sermon, I mean a sermon that is more focused on preaching a political view rather than God's view. A sermon that is centered on political kingdoms rather than the kingdom of Christ. A sermon that is more concentrated on a political individual, such as the president or some other person in politics, rather than the person of Christ. Sermons that are more focused on political parties or politicians or political views or agendas, in my view, are no sermons at all. They have no place in God's church during the Lord's Day devalue the purpose of the church gathering on Sunday mornings as an insult to Christ and do nothing to strengthen God's people who are hungering for a word from the Lord. So just know it is not my intent to preach a political sermon, but the passage sort of compels me to speak to the times that we are in today. So with all that being said, let's move on to the text And first, let's set the stage. So in verse 9, it says, All this, this is the teacher and his wisdom and his intellect. He says, All this I observed, meaning what came before, verses 1 through 8, All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So as I said, this passage deals with a king, with somebody who is in authority and who governs a people that are under his leadership. And I think verse 9 sort of holds the key to unlocking the door of interpretation of verses 1 through 8. This passage, verse 9, is telling us that this is particularly dealing with someone in authority, somebody who is a king, even though as we see in verses 2 through 4, we see the king, keep the king's command, be not... hasty to go away from his or the king's presence, for the word of the king is supreme. But we see as we continue through the passage that there are sort of words or particular ideas that continue to to sort of show us that this is still dealing with the same person. And verse 9 is no different, namely because we see there that it says that this person has power over man, And we also see sort of the exercise of this person's authority or power, and that is that it is in a manner that is injurious to another person. And so as we look to this passage, I'll tell you that I think that the main, the applicational thrust of this passage is discretion and discernment. And hopefully that'll become clarifying as we move through the passage. And what we see here in this passage is that we, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus who's come down from heaven to fulfill all righteousness, who was without sin and rose again from the dead, if you've given your life to follow the Lord Jesus, then you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're a citizen of the city of God. And as we think about this passage, this passage, I think, speaks to the tension that we feel as citizens of the kingdom of heaven while also living in the city of man, under a ruler who does not have the same fear of God that we do. So we live with this tension, and this tension we see, as I said earlier, we see in different places in the Scriptures. We saw that in Peter, as he exhorts the Christians to live as exiles in this world. Hebrews eleven thirteen speaks of this tension, Speaking of those who came before us, the saints who came before us, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. These are the saints who have looked for the heavenly city, a homeland that they could not find here in this world. And so they lived in this tension, this homesickness. First Peter 2, 9-12, I will read the passage in it's entirety to you, but it speaks about how we as Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Right, that if, right? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is you. It's talking about you, but it also makes a distinction between you and the rest of the world. The rest of the world, those who not followed, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, is not identified in this way. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And one of the reasons why Jesus says that to believe in him is to be born again is because that's exactly what it is. You are born again into the city city of heaven. In other words, when you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you receive sort of a, a new passport, the old passport that says that you belong to the world, that's, that's gone. It's trashed. Now you have a passport that says that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Earlier this year, my family and I took a trip to Disney, and before you might get your get up in arms about going to Disney, this was way before the, all the stuff came out in Florida and their sort of different things that they came out with. But planned it. Purchase tickets, purchase plane tickets, plan for it for many months. But it doesn't matter how much planning you do, you're not getting into the kingdom of Disney unless you have a passport, either a particular wristband that they have to scan, or if you have a, a sort of a, a, an, a, in your virtual wallet, this passport that you have to download. And you have to put in your credentials and prove that you actually purchased tickets. But without that, without that passport, all the planning that you do, all the effort that you made, It's not going to get you in through those doors unless you prove that you have the passport. And similarly, as Christians, we may not know the date when the kingdom of Christ will come. We may not know the date when we will see those gates open for us, but God has it fixed. What matters to us most is whether or not we have the passport, whether or not we have the Holy Spirit residing in us who is the guarantee of our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What we need is the passport. If you have the passport, then you'll get in. Now circle back to verse 1. It reads, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I think this verse functions as a preface to what's coming. It's saying, you need wisdom because of what I'm about to tell you. You need to pursue wisdom. You need to ask for wisdom. You need to conduct yourself in a wise manner. And this wisdom makes a person's face shine. Wisdom is sort of like wearing an invisible crown, that others may not see, but you can sort of sense it. There's something about the person when they wear the wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord. It changes one's countenance. While the harshness of the times, trials, tribulations, personal afflictions, personal sufferings might add wrinkles to one's demeanor, one's countenance, the value of wisdom is that wisdom has a way of making you more impervious to the wrinkles that come through the trials and tribulations of the world. It sort of helps the person keep a youthful appearance. It doesn't mean that they never go through difficult things in their life. But the sternness of one's face that comes from the hardness of the times just isn't really there because they have a wisdom about them that comes from the fear of the Lord. This wisdom comes with an endurance that helps you to persevere during hard times. It helps the rope maintain its integrity and not fall apart. It's like Moses who communed with God up on the mountain and beheld the glory of the Lord and his countenance was brightened. So the countenance of God's people, they shine as they keep their eyes fixed on the glorious and brilliant heavenly city that awaits to receive them. So continuing with the passage, this wisdom is necessary because we are living under a godless king. Verse 2 to 4 says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? So there's a tension here. We are called to keep the king's command. Now it says because of God's oath to him. I don't think that's actually. I would actually disagree with. Uh, so I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. I think if you look at other versions of the Bible, they actually don't read that way. Instead, it says because of your oath to God. And I think that is probably. I think that's most consistent with the rest of the passage. And so there's this balance of keeping the king's command, but at the same time remembering your oath to the Lord. That is your fear of God. Yes, you keep the king's command, but remember that you have this obedience unto the Lord first and foremost. And be not hasty to go from his presence. I think it speaks to the moments that we might disagree, right? Why else would you turn away from somebody hastily? Right? Because you might disagree, because you might be angry, because, because you might be upset over what the person has said, because you strongly disagree, and so you turn away. You don't want to have anything more to do with this conversation. But be careful that you not sin in your anger, that you not take stand in an evil cause to bring disrespect to the person in authority because we have to remember that this person is in a position of authority because he's been permitted or orchestrated to be in that position by God Himself who is sovereign over all nations and sovereign over all kings. At the end of the day, every ruler, every authority is an instrument for God's glorious purposes. Romans 13 tells us in verse 4, the ruler, is a servant of God for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Right, so they are a servant of God for your good and for my good. And so therefore, that position demands our utmost respect. However, they don't always exercise their authority as one who is a servant of God. Sometimes, instead of bringing justice on the wrongdoer, they bring sort of their perceived justice on the right doers. And in that sense, they're not functioning as God's wrath. 2 Corinthians 19.5 says, He appointed judges in all the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, City by city, and said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. So judges are those who are placed in positions of authority are to exercise their authority. In the fear of the Lord. Now, this passage, we might argue, was given to the Israelites, Old Testament, that was for them. However, I think it still applies today. God does not give anyone that kind of authority over a people without certain expectations, not so that they can use that authority to run things in whatever way they deem to be right. John nineteen ten, Jesus and Pilate, Pilate said to Jesus, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus corrects him and says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So even the authority that Pilate had over Jesus to crucify him, Jesus says, "No, you have the reason you have your authority to crucify me or release me is because God gave it to you. This is authority that you had didn't come from you. You may have been voted in, or may have, maybe you took it by force, but at the end of the day, the reason you are in your position is because God allowed you to be. You are an instrument of God for His glorious purposes. Whether it's President Biden, President Xi Jinping, whether it's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, whether it's President Putin, whoever he may be, God grants authority with expectations. What comes to mind is that popular, well-known statement from the Spider-Man comic books, with great power comes great responsibility. That is certainly true, and that responsibility is defined by God. The position to rule is a privilege that is, as the scriptures tell us, is tethered to the authority of God. But what we see today in the world is what we see, actually, what we read in Psalm chapter 2, where it says that the rulers and the kings of the world say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be tethered to the authority of God. They want to rule in their own way. And certainly things are no different, in our case, with our own president, which speaks to the secular age that we live in. And it is a secular age. And what I mean by a secular age is that it is a godless age. It is an age that has, wants nothing to do with God, that prides itself in not thanking God, that glories in saying that God isn't real. That God doesn't exist. Not only has it per- permeated society and culture, but it's even, in many places, infiltrated the church and the lives of Christians as well. In the book, Our Secular Age, Colin Hansen writes, the key theological question for our secular age then is this. Does God get to be God? The answer, even for many self-described Christians, is No. Only on our terms. Even for some, yes, we believe in God, but we believe in God according to our terms. God is not God according to what He says in His Word, but God is God according to what we say. Friedrich Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, a philosopher. I once said that God is dead. And what he meant by that is we've sort of evolved or transitioned to an age where we no longer need God. In our enlightenment, we have progressed. We have made advancements. Now, it is perfectly fine to not believe in God. In fact, it is rational to not believe in God. We don't need God anymore. But he also... Was a sort of prophet because he predicted that with the absence of God, or that if God is actually dead, then that would only lead to a to nihilism, to this self centeredness and selfishness. It would lead to a meaninglessness, it would lead to a purposelessness. And this is exactly what we see today this pervasive nihilism, this agonizing meaninglessness, this tortuous purposelessness. Everybody's looking for meaning and purpose in the world. And they're not finding it because the world believes that God is dead and there is no meaning, there is no purpose without God. Nietzsche also said that there would be a loss of values. He said that one of the benefits of God or benefits of believing in God or religion is that you have something to sort of hang your values on, that God is sort of the the rod on which you can hang your values on. But if you don't find, if man does not find a replacement for God or a replacement for that rod, then there will be a loss of values. You have nothing to anchor them on. You have nothing for those values to stand upon, a bedrock, a foundation. and That's exactly how our secular age is today. There's nothing to put the values on. In fact, values are confusing. What's right for one person is wrong for another person. What's right to them is wrong according to the scriptures. There is a loss of values in the world. And the sad thing about, what to make matters worse, about living now as citizens the kingdom of heaven and the city of man is that we have someone on top perpetuating the confusion and the disaster that the age already is. We feel this tension when the president legislates or intends to take your hard-earned money in order to provide for the slaying of children in the womb. We have to bear this tension when his cabinet and those who support him compare parents to domestic terrorists for simply standing up for the children's education. We have to endure this tension when he says that our children belong to the state and to educators and not to parents. We have to withstand this kind of tension when he promotes sex reassignment surgery for all children as the way to better promote mental health. In that same book I quoted earlier, Carl Truman writes, human nature isn't a psychological or even merely social construct, and our constant efforts to deny that truth can only end in disaster. When we treat one another, when we treat man as just a biological person or just a social being, and nothing more than that would you end up with is disaster. And it is a disastrous age. It is a confusing age. It is a chaotic age. That's what characterizes the city of man right now. So given the kind of age that we are living in, given the kind of city that we are living in, the city of Man. Our third heading is that we have to discern the times. You might remember when you used to—I don't know—I don't think they do this anymore. But when you would turn on the television to watch a show or a movie, it always had like this this disclaimer. Says the following program has this, this, suggested material, has this language, has violence, and so on and so forth. And it always says viewer discretion is advised. That's when the church gathering, right? This is intended to be, God intended this to be sort of a, a precursor or a foreshadow to our lives in the heavenly city. Every time we walk through those doors, there's this neon sign that should flash in our minds. I should say, Christian discretion is advised. You're entering the world of man. Christian discretion is advised. Whenever you turn something on in the television, whenever you read the headlines, the newspapers, whenever you perhaps you enter the workplace, Christian discretion is advised. passage deals with the king. The king gives commands. The king is supreme. Who can question the words of the king? This king has power over man. But verse 6 says, for there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. The passage calls for discretion. We may be angry, we may come become upset over things that are legislated, for things that are promoted from the top. And to some degree, right, we must continue to respect the authority of the king, but there comes a time where discretion is strongly advised for Christians and we have to know when exactly we should keep the king's command and when we should not. And this isn't the kind of king that's described here in this passage. is isn't necessarily a, a dictator. It might even just be an upright kind of person. But it shows us that this is a king that we might at times disagree with. Because of our allegiance to the Lord first and foremost. So, what we need is a Daniel like discretion and a Daniel like resolve. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 8, talking about Daniel's three contemporaries. Therefore, at one time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the, firing, the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? This is the kind of discretion that we are called to have. They trusted in God to deliver them. And as you continue to read, he did deliver them. But they also had a category for God not delivering them. And we have to have the discretion and the resolve to say that no matter what, whether or not God spares me or delivers me, my allegiance to God is is first and foremost and most important that my allegiance to the king. The passage says here, the one who keeps command will know no evil thing. And I think that's talking about not in the present, but in the future. Sort of an eschatological preservation, an end times Preservation. That you will be preserved. This is what Jesus was talking about when he says, Not a hair on your head will perish. He's not saying that you will be preserved from all affliction and all troubles in this world, but you're following the Lord Jesus to the day of your dying breath, will keep you and he will preserve you. That in the end, you will not suffer any harm. Daniel himself shows this discretion. In this resolve, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 6, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction. And sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So legislate, put into law that all men are to worship you and the old golden image that you have established. Therefore, the king Darius signed the document, and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber and opened towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the of alliance? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said to the, before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Right? Signed into law a commandment that would violate the conscience of Daniel that goes against what God has written in his word. And knowing that he could suffer harm and death, he decides that it is better to obey the commandments of God and the commandments of men. And time fails for me to to remind you of the discretion showed by Moses in his confronting Pharaoh, Esther in in confronting the king, or even any or all the prophets of old who confronted the kings, because of their sin and their disobedience unto the Lord. So as we live in the city of man, it requires great, great discretion. Knowing when to obey and knowing when we are called to follow the Lord, even if it means disregarding or disobeying the commands of the king. This calls us to live wisely. And how do we live in wisdom as we live in the city of man? There's a time and season for everything. It says in this passage, there's a time and season to know what is the proper due course of action, depending on the times, and it requires wisdom, it requires discretion, requires discernment. But there is one thing that we can always do that is always appropriate and necessary in any time, in any season, in any occasion, and that is to pray. 1 Timothy two one. There's at least one thing we should be praying for. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Just because we might disagree with the commands that come from above, doesn't excuse us from not praying. We are commanded to pray for those who are above us. We are commanded to pray for kings. We are commanded to pray for our president. Namely, or so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. That he might rule with a wisdom and might institute those things that might lead to the kind of life given to peace in a way that we can continue to live as Christians. And we may continue to pray, we should continue to pray, and we might see that the Lord, for whatever reason, has not answered our prayers. But with that, we can look to verse 8, where it says, No man has power to retain the spirit or power of the day of death, there's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. That passage speaks to the limitations of the power of the king. It's limited, it can only go so far. Just as a person cannot discharge himself in the middle of war because he doesn't have the authority to do so, because his power is limited, so are the powers of the king. They are limited. He has no power over death. His wickedness will not deliver him or cause him to live longer. He cannot retain his own spirit to live longer than he desires. Death renders all men equal. This is a reminder that the power of the king is considerably, considerably limited. When it comes to death, his power fails here. His authority fails here. His rule fails here. His wealth and resources fail here. His might and soldiers fail here. And his will fails here. And when it comes to death, there is only one whose power does not fail. That is none other than Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered and beaten death. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 10, a passage familiar to you, because we pray this often on Sunday mornings. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't pray that prayer something rote. We don't pray that it's a sort of mantra. That we don't pray this as something that if we do this, then this will guarantee this. But this is a prayer of longing. This is a prayer coming from the heart. It's intended to be a prayer coming from the heart of those who are just homesick, who are eager to see the heavenly city, to see God's kingdom come and reign on this earth. It is the prayer of anticipation. It is a prayer of great, deep desire. And this is a prayer that we should pray often, especially if we continue to live as exiles with this tension. So we pray. Second, we encourage. First, Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, With the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We encourage one another with the reality that Jesus Christ is coming. Jesus has not left his bride abandoned on the altar. Jesus has not orphaned his children on earth, but Jesus is coming. Jesus will return for his bride. Jesus will return for his people. Therefore, we don't put our trust in man. We respect the authority, but we don't put our ultimate trust and hope in the man. Well, we put our trust in Jesus, who's the only Messiah, the Savior, the God-man who died and rose again from the dead, the one who redeemed us from sin and the wrath of God the one who is the king of kings and the one who is the Lord of lords, the son of man, the son of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who is faithful and true, who rides on a white horse. This is the one who told Peter in the garden of Gethsemane at the moment of his arrest, sheath your sword, Peter. But this one, the Bible tells us, is coming again with his sword drawn to vanquish the city of man, subdue every rebel ruler, obliterate evil, and establish his glorious kingdom on earth. So be encouraged with those words. Jesus is coming. The coming of Christ is like a ray of sunlight to the Christian who has been traveling in the dreary and cloudy skies of the city of man. Let me give you one final exhortation. This is for, specifically for those of you who have children at home, who currently are raising children in the home, or if you desire children. So we live in the city of men, and it is a godless age. Not only is it a godless age, but it's also increasingly an anti-family kind of age. It seeks to redefine The family, it is not anything like the picture of the family that is painted for us in the scriptures. It thinks that it is doing good to the family, but instead it's seeking to destroy the family. The family is essential to any society. The historian Edward Gibbons, in his work on the fall of the Roman Empire, he identifies five major causes that led to the destruction of the Roman Empire. And one of those causes was the breakdown of the family. The Congregationalist minister, John Angle James, in the 18th century, had once said, the well-being of the state is dependent on the well-being of families. If the state is compared to a pillar, families is the cement which holds it together let this be wanting, let the well-being of families, let this be wanting, let this be lacking, and however inherently excellent the materials, however elegant the shape, however ornamented the base, the shaft, or the capital may be, it contains in itself the principle of decay, an active cause of dilapidation and ruin. But let it also be said, We should fight for our families, not just because it is good for the well-being of any thriving society, but also because we desire for our children to know the Lord. There is a war right now, and it is a war for the hearts and minds of our children. And we have to have the discretion and the courage and the resolve to say, Over my dead body will you get my children? We can and certainly should teach our children to respect their leaders, but we also have to teach them that these leaders are also not God's. The leader of God's people in the Old Testament, Joshua, had once said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's not just a purpose statement for one's life and family, but that has to become your family. Where at me and my house, where my house we will worship the Lord, where Christ is King, where Christ will be the center of our family. The Bible commands, not suggests, but commands that parents raise up their children in the fear and the instruction of the Lord. They have to be taught Christ. They have to be taught to fear the Lord, to revere the Lord, to accept the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Yes, we pray for them, that the Holy Spirit of God will come upon their lives and regenerate them and cause them to be born again, but we put them in a most favorable position if we continually give them Christ by praying with them, by reading the Scriptures to them, by talking to them about Christ. The Bible says, the Bible tells us, That this responsibility is mainly given to parents. It is our duty. It is our responsibility. So let us embrace this responsibility. Let us press into this responsibility that our children would know Jesus Christ, that they would know the fear of the Lord and grow wiser because of it, that we may present to them truth as it's written in His Word, so they might see through the illusions that are there in the world. We can and should have high regard and respect for country, for government, for our leaders, but we are the people of God first. And we are temporarily living in the city of man. That requires wisdom, that requires discernment, and that requires a great deal of discretion. And God has given us his word, so that we may have wisdom. And God tells us to pray for wisdom, and he gives it generously to those who ask. So let us tap into those means so that we might live rightly, godly, and honorably, honorably unto the Lord, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, while living in the city of man. Let's pray. Lord, we we come before you and Lord, we admit that that some days are harder than others. Some days it is harder than others to live in this tension. Lord sometimes we just We do give in to the tension that we feel because we don't want the tension. Lord, but would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us? Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the heavenly city that awaits us. That is our home. That is what we long for. Help us to pray for it. Lord, hasten that day. But until that time comes... Give us the wisdom, give us the discernment, give us the courage, give us the discretion to live as citizens of your heavenly kingdom. And help us in those times when it's especially, especially difficult. Help us by your grace, through your power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Church, let's stand one more time in response to today's message. Let's worship. Amen. This last song is called Let the Nations Be Glad. Let's sing together. Let the glory. Let the glory of the Lord forever be our joy may redemption be the theme of our song for by grace we have been saved and by grace we shall proclaim to the corners of the earth that christ is come Let the nations be glad, let the people rejoice, for salvation belongs to our God. Yes, Father. And let the whole earth be filled with the praises of the Lord, for salvation. Through the ages gone before Through the trial and the sword Many saints and martyrs conquered Though they died Till we holding out the cross Crossing oceans, suffering loss Shall endure all things to win The crown of life let the nations be glad let the people church as your holy church goes forth in the holy spirit's paris lord with the glories of the gospel to exclaim yes father now we pray your oh, kingdom come and we pray your oh, will be for the honor and the glory of your name. Let's sing. Let the nations be alive. Father, in in response of today's message, Lord, in your word, we sing that we pray, Lord, that your kingdom may come just as we heard today, Lord. May your will be done for the honor and glory of your name. God, I, I pray that we the church may stand, Lord, in the confidence of Christ, our Lord, our rock of salvation. God, may we live wisely as we heard today, Lord, according to our call as believers. Father, I pray that you may remind us, Lord, remind us through your Spirit, remind us through your Word, Lord, of the power in whom we trust as we we battle uh, the principalities, Lord, of this world, as we As we battle, Father, uh, just trials and tribulations. So, Father, remind us that You have equipped us already. You have equipped us already, Lord, through, through Your Word, Father. God, remind us that we are Your people. Remind us, Lord, that we are Your people. So, Father, in, in all of this, I, I, I thank you. I praise you, Father, for our time today. May you be glorified. Um, and God, I pray these things in Jesus' name and for your glory, Lord. Amen. And today's benediction is out of Revelations 5, verses 12 through 13. Well, 12 and 13 it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. But church, God bless you. You're dismissed. Amen. <laughs> nations. Uh. <laughs>